episode 171 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast takes off now. The Pilot the Pilot podcast is brought to you by The Finer Point. They have an amazing ground school app for the knowledge you need to fly. To learn more, visit learnthefinerpoints.com. Hello, Jim Higgins, uh, professor at the University of North Dakota Department of Aviation. Hey, v Nation, what is going on? And welcome back to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. My name is Justin Seams, and I am your host. Today's episode has been a very, very highly requested episode by by you. I have had so many DMs. When's the next state of the industry? When is the next state of the industry? Well, today is the day. I reached out to Dr. Jim Higgins and he thankfully came on the podcast with short notice and was more than willing to come on and talk about what's been going on. We did a little recap over the last year. What's happened, where we are now, and where the industry is headed. I think this is a very interesting episode. I love talking with him and getting his knowledge on aviation and just comparing this downturn and the previous downturns and what we think the future. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can go ahead and forward this to all your friends that don't listen to the Pilot to Pilot podcast. I think the State of the Industry episodes are great for anyone just getting into this podcast and it can lead them to all of the interviews. So share it with all your friends. Check out Pilot's Coffee at Instagram and make sure you follow Pilot to Pilot as well. Aviation, I don't want to keep you any longer. So without any further ado, here's the state of the industry. Jim, what is going on? Welcome back to the Pilot to Pilot podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me back and uh, always happy to visit with you. Yeah, I mean, I was telling you before we started recording that this has been the number one requested thing. My DMs are just full of, I need to hear Jim Higgins again. What's going on in the industry, please? <laughs> Well, I appreciate you saying that, and I'll do my best to represent. I know, no pressure now, right? <laughs> That's right. Well, what cool. could go wrong? Well, well let's <laughs> like, we were talking before too. This is pretty much a year ago. I think we started with a series. Uh, a year ago in, uh, well, I guess March would have technically been the month that felt like it went on forever, but we had no idea what was going to happen. I remember us talking a little bit like, we don't know if furloughs are going to happen. This might be This might be done by the end of the summer. Like we're expecting travel to pick back up. And it was constantly a fluid thing. It was changing so much with more information we get. And it's still changing to this day with more information that we get. So I guess a little recap, like what what do you think about the last year? Like uh, how everything's been handled, what we've been going through. I mean, now that we have time to look back on this, is there things that the airline industry is thinking that we could have done better, we could have done worse or anything like that? Well, there. What a year, right? There certainly have been uh, ups and downs from everyone's perspective, from the perspective of the employees, the airline executives, labor unions, but of course the passengers as well. Talk about a merry-go-round with uh, some days great news, other days not so good news. And I think what we talked about a year ago, some of that uh, we hit it out of the park and some of that uh, we did not see coming at all. And so we can certainly review that. Um, it, it, it's kind of like a little microchasm this last year of aviation and the airline career in general, piloting career in general, and that, you know, what we've sometimes seen over 20 to 30 years, we got a little bit of everything in that uh, one year period. So, yeah, we can certainly break that down and go through some of those things that have happened. Uh, the good news is I think we can safely say, and I'm going to knock on wood here on my desk, I think we can safely say that uh at least in the U.S., uh, this is behind, getting behind us. We still have uh, we still have a ways to go, but it's getting behind us, and we can certainly see the uh, light at the end of the tunnel uh, coming up. Hopefully, 
but we can certainly explore that as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I will hope so. Like you said, like we, we, we've tried to predict the future before and it has not worked out well. So I, I don't want to say it's 100% going to be back because you truly never know, but it does look like it's trending that way. I was just flying commercially yesterday and um, I went to go visit my parents who are now all fully vaccinated. So it was the first time to see them and since it's all happened and both flights were full, you know, fully, fully packed. And it, it seemed like everything was as normal. Uh, people wearing masks and some people arguing about wearing masks. So everything seems to be just like it has been the last couple of years or the last year. But yeah, it's a, it's really good to see that airlines are starting to hire again. I think United or um, they're all planning on hiring soon in the next month or two. Yes. Uh, almost all major airlines and most of the regionals are, have either announced plans or are rapidly hiring. I mean, I was just looking at some of the United numbers, for instance, they have a class, I want to say, almost every week, and it's growing. So, I mean, they're starting kind of small, well, not, not really small, but 30 people uh, every week. And then I think it eventually ramps up to close to 50 by the end of the summer. So, yeah, and you're seeing that everywhere. The regionals, of course, are back in full force as well. Um, obviously, uh, during the pandemic, we had some really bad news for a few carriers that went out of business on the regional side. So, um, you know, that was sad to see. But now that we've uh, gone through all that, it looks like there's some opportunities, uh, you know, coming back up. Yeah. And going back to what we were talking about before, about kind of looking back at the year, um, it, it was almost like everyone, like the, the aviation industry followed what everyone else was thinking. It was more of like shock and disbelief at first and that this isn't going to happen. It was more pushing it off and maybe a delayed reaction. And then the abrupt uh, international pause of flying which I think really kind of showed the airlines like, okay, this is for real. We're going to have to figure something out. Would you agree that that's kind of how it played out? I, I absolutely agree. The other thing that didn't help us is we experienced a pretty good second spike in COVID both domestically and then ultimately worldwide. And of course, some places right now are still going through it. You look at India and Brazil. There's a few other countries that are, are Turkey's another one. There's, there's a few places that are still uh, not, basically they're where we were, you know, four to five months ago. And so, uh, that didn't help at all on the secondary, uh, recovery. So I agree, um, you know, and, and hopefully, hopefully it's a downhill from here. Looking back on reactions, airlines handled this differently. American was kind of like, we're not really changing anything. If you want to book and fly all airline or all seats are available. Uh, we're not going to negotiate anything. We're just going to straight furlough. Uh, Every other airline, it seemed like, took the more safety forward way, if you want to say. I mean, I'm not trying to call it American. There's nothing wrong. with. I guess United kind of did it similar. They were willing to book every seat as well, but they did protections with furloughs. And then you have Delta, who was the longest airline to kind of block middle seats, and Southwest did that as well. Looking back at it, do you see, I mean, did one necessarily didn't do it better than the other? I don't think it really affected the money they were making or customer loyalty at where we are today. I feel like each airline that handled it differently is still in a good position to succeed minus maybe uh, debt that they might have or having to pay back loans and, and all that kind of stuff, but how they handled it and customer perception. I think I was in the mindset that this is going to change how people fly in the future. They're going to remember how they were treated now. And I don't think that's the case. You know, it's a really, really uh, great question, and it's something that we're probably going to have to wait to see ultimately with the consumer behavior and how they react. What we have seen in the past, and of course, this event was unprecedented, so we can't always look at what we've seen in the past to predict what's going to happen going forward. But um, the leisure travelers, and to a large extent, the business travelers as well, they are very price inelastic. So what I'm trying to say is, 
is as long as the price is there, people have short memories for maybe sometimes how they were treated before. There certainly are exceptions at the micro level, but uh, generally speaking, consumer behavior will follow the, the best price point, followed closely by convenience, you know, times of flights, et cetera, things like that. So um, my best guess is, is once the industry uh, gets its full capacity back, I think it'll be business as usual. Now, uh, that being said, that's from a consumer point of view. I do think market shares will likely change substantially. And then the other real big question, Justin, is the business traveler and the international traveler, because uh, that's the one component that still has not returned in droves. In fact, when you look at current levels of business travelers, corporate bookings, and you look at um, international travel, they still are very much at the uh, height of the COVID levels, you know, basically an 85% reduction in that segment of the industry. The leisure travelers, I think, by and large, have come back, and you know, uh, they've they've fulfilled uh, a lot of the lost revenue. And then one other thing about the question about bad decisions or good decisions back in the early days, uh, <clears throat> I think it's fair to say there were certainly some airlines that probably made better decisions. But back then, it was all about cash flow and cash burn and, you know, just keeping the lights on in the companies. And so the companies were all trying pretty radical decision making. The one thing that kind of covered for that was the stimulus package, the CARES Act and then the post stimulus. Um, it kind of if, if anyone did make a bad mistake, that uh, money kind of covered for that a little bit. And I don't say that in a cynical way or a negative way. Uh, it was such an unprecedented situation that the executives out there. Uh, and, you know, it's what we call economically. You probably read the book, The Black Swan. This was one of those near black swan events. Uh, we certainly had dealt with pandemics before. We certainly dealt with uh, massive disruptions. But this was the first time that we've had a very uh, elongated pandemic that absolutely disrupted, you know, worldwide the operation. So the decisions that were made, um, I think, were the best. The question is now for the recovery. Will those decisions help uh, support each individual airline? Uh, as we wait for the return of the business traveler and the international travelers, and you know who's who's going to have the whose decisions that were made back in March are going to bear fruit now that we're coming into the recovery. That that's what we have to watch. Yeah, you bring up a good point about the international travel. Obviously, that's still down, and then business travel. Uh, businesses, if they did travel, I mean, I fly fractional, so they there was a huge uh, demand and charter and fractional and corporate in general. And are they going to stay that way? Is are they going to find it's worth the extra money? to stay safe. And if they do, how long do they stay in that mindset? Because like you said, uh, everyone is very much following the price. Uh, in two years, they're not going to be as worried because this is going to be more in the back of the memory. So they're probably more willing to go book the the first class ticket or the business class ticket rather than the business jet. So it's really interesting. And it's going to be interesting to see how the um, companies that operate just private jets, fractional corporate and versus the airlines, how they can either keep or how they can take those passengers from one another. Uh, are airlines going to offer more? Are they going to have to do more of like a high class? So, uh, we'll pick you up from your house, bring you straight to the airplane, like type deal. Like how are they going to get away from the glamour or get people away from the glamour of business business travel and aviation? Well, and I think the pressure that business travel is going to put on uh, the higher end uh, uh, airline travelers is going to only increase, especially with the uh, new technologies that are coming out, you know, I look at like the Honda Jet and some of the others uh, that are coming out have really lowered that price point. Um, and so you're going to start, I think you really will start seeing that. Um, the other question is sociological. You know, um, one of the 
ideas and notions that are out there is now that the business world uh, has learned how to Zoom or you know use some kind of virtual conferencing, is that going to take the place of you know face-to-face meetings as well? So you know you do have two types of pressures now. Um, you know, being an airline person, airline family, I would like to say, oh no, no, people always have to meet face to face. But I do think the reality of it is, is uh, we will absolutely see an increase in business travelers as uh, COVID subsides even more. We will absolutely see the return to international travel uh, to a certain degree as well as as COVID subsides worldwide. I I do believe that. Uh, however, I do think there will be um, a sociological long term effect on uh, doing virtual meetings uh, versus uh, face-to-face. Now, that's the bad news. I don't know how big that effect's going to be. I would estimate, you know, uh, maybe a 30 to 50% uh, dampening, which, of course, is horrible to hear. And that's just a pure speculative guess. I'm sure, Justin, you can guess as well. But on the other side of that, remember, the worldwide population is still massively increasing. And so as economies continue to emerge, especially in, uh, in places like China, they haven't even really... Uh, ended their industrial revolution, and in other parts of the world as well, you're going to see that demand uh, just technically uh, increase as well. So that will fill that uh, 30 to 50 percent just because of our massive populations that that are growing. So uh, there still will be great need to do face-to-face. Certainly leisure travelers, there no one's going to take a virtual vacation. I mean, come on, let's be real. But a a sales meeting uh, or other types of in-the-field service and support, things like that, uh, there'll always be a need for that. And there may be a short-term um, dampening of that. So you may you may not see that recovery on the business side back to uh, pre-COVID levels for another year or two, but certainly you will see it with uh, Leisure Traveler. And it will be very interesting to watch the business segment, the corporate segment, as the cost to entry gets a little bit lower and lower. In fact, you're starting to see capabilities of mid-level businesses being able to afford some of that. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what kind of pressure that puts on it as well. That I have not, I do, I haven't forecast yet, or haven't really taken a deep dive in. But a great question. Yeah, it's really, it's really interesting because for the past year, I almost feel like for corporate companies, it's been easy for them to to get new clients. They don't have to do anything. They don't have to fight with anyone. Maybe than other pricing differently within the industry. But airlines, you couldn't compete with what corporate was offering. So now we're coming into this year and the next year, and they're really going to have to start competing more against the airlines uh, from that one trip that they're taking. Maybe people don't need to, to have the private jet more than that one annual flight. How do you keep them? So it's really interesting, the battle between airlines and corporate to see how they fight against each other and how they can uh, make it happen. Because I'm sure airlines are going to have to make their, their tickets cheaper to entice people more, offer it as cheap as they possibly can to where maybe they, they are or just barely making a profit off that seat and try to win them back that way and then show them that they can do it. Well, that's, a, that's an interesting point. You know, obviously the, the segment of the industry, who we traditionally have called the low-cost carriers or the ultra-low-cost carriers, uh, you know, they seem to be pretty well positioned because their business plans do not necessarily rely on business travel at all, nor really international travel. So uh, I think you're going to see uh, them do a little bit better. In fact, most of them, take a look at Frontier, for instance, you know, they never disrupted their growth plans. They're doubling uh, of size that the orders were never canceled to Airbus and the hiring. It stopped for a little bit, but uh, now it's beginning in earnest. And so I think you're going to certainly see, um, you know, some massive expansions there. Uh, 
I don't know what's going to happen. I, one thing I can tell you about the uh, business travel, as you know, it really comes down to the value of time because the one thing that business travel, besides the comfort and you know the other factors, but the one thing that really, really is a litmus a differentiator is the amount of time savings you can get, especially when you can bypass major airports and you know stuff like that. And so uh, that's going to you're you're exactly right. Each each company is going to go through their own individual analysis of that and figure out what makes the most sense. Is it going to be these flights, especially as the price comes down or if it stays down uh, versus uh, getting, you know, seven or eight people uh, to a nearby airport that's much closer to their ultimate destination and saving, you know, seven, eight, 10 hours. Uh, that's going to be really, really interesting to see how that, that pans out. Yeah, and it definitely is. And, and JetBlue is coming out with uh, the 321 XLR. Well, they're not coming out with it, but they're coming out with their their international routes over to London. Is that going to, uh, I mean, how are they going to position that in this market? They need to, to get those business travelers, uh, the leisure travel. Uh, it's going to be really interesting to watch. And I feel like in, in 10 to 15 years, there's going to be some good studies, some good classroom material to kind of uh, to show how companies react and how competition and it's just going to be really interesting. And it's something I'm looking forward to. Well, that particular question of growth, you know, as much as we tout the low-cost carrier uh, for their business plan and their ability to make a profit no matter what type of uh, passenger are sitting in their seats, the big knock against uh, those uh, carriers is the ultimate uh, growth wall. Because unless you're willing to do things, like we've seen Southwest, for instance, going to Hawaii with their ETOPS, you know, and now we're seeing JetBlue uh, going into Europe with their ETOPS. And so, you know, um, that's the only way it's really going to work, I think, long term, because at some point, the markets are going to get saturated in the U.S. Now, the population's uh, growing slowly, but eventually you're going to see some saturation. And so uh, it's going to be very hard to grow. And of course, it's a duty of every company to grow. Your shareholders want them to grow. And so they're going to have to find ways to do it. So Places like United, American, and Delta, they've already got built-in growth potential in their international network. So as that recovers longer term, uh, they're going to be in a, in a better spot. In the next two to three years, though, you're going to see a lot of uh, focus on the domestic markets. And you bring up United and International, and they were the one, from what I remember, uh, they had the most Asia-specific routes, and they were very affected with their business model, with their international travel. Do airlines, are they more skeptical? Do they build in some protections? Do they enter slowly before they jump back into the level that they were at before? Or are they like, we need money as fast as possible. Start it back up. Like, let's just go crazy and, and hope that we get the travel and, and the people go back to, to the countries. Do you think that's going to happen? Or do you think it's going to be more of like a, a hesitant, like we have been burned before? You know how the aviation industry, aviation industry is. They think about things for about 10 years and then they're like, oh, that's never going to happen again. Let's just go crazy and, and get make as much money as possible. And then something like this happens or with Boeing and the 737 maxes and safety becomes more relevant and then profits become more relevant after uh, 10 years or so. Do you think it's going to be a slow entry or do you think it's going to be, let's go full back to international travel? Great question. I think uh, the way it is, I think you're going to see it done as it's been done in the past with any kind of international market expansion. Uh, there'll be a lot of analysis done. It'll be a case by case, route by route you know, uh, determination, you know, a lot of it plays with the international trade agreements that are in place on who can fly where and, and what they can do. And so I think you're going to see those three factors come together. And I think it's going to definitely be more of a toe in the water 
approach, uh, not a light switch. And you, you can see that by just looking at the types of planes that are parked and out of commission right now. It's a lot more of your long haul aircraft right now are, are, um, are parked rather than, you know, the narrow body or I, I don't know. I, I used to think the 757 is a pretty big airplane, but I guess technically some people it's narrow body. So you're going to see some of those uh, aircraft maybe come out and serve domestically uh, first. And um, I just think they're going to like United and American and Delta one, they can't do it right now for regulatory reasons, but once they get the green light, I don't think it's going to be a light switch. Hey, everyone, here are these planes we're going to fly because it's very expensive to operate overseas, uh, expensive aircraft to operate. And so uh, I just think you're going to see a much more uh, controlled approach. But I do, even though that that part of the industry is going to likely recover a lot more slowly than other parts, I do think it'll eventually return and you will see that. And there is an element of leisure travelers, obviously, that like to go international as well. And so that will help uh, fuel uh, some of that recovery uh, as well. Looking back on this, do you see winners? Do you see certain airlines that maybe have, I mean, you mentioned Frontier specifically earlier. Do you see people or airlines that have positioned themselves better for the future? Or do you think once we return in five years, it's still going to be American United Delta Southwest? Or do you think maybe someone has positioned themselves to put themselves in the argument of being in that group or exceeding that group? So it's a it's a really interesting. I don't know if I have a very good analogy for it, but but the short answer, in my opinion, is in the short term, you're certainly going to see the LLCs, the ULCCs, uh, likely capture a lot more market share than they had uh, pre-pandemic, and they're going to do that because of their abilities to operate on a lower cost structure uh, domestically, and also capture uh, every customer as a likely profit margin. Uh, that's not necessarily the case with some of the uh, major airlines, although they've done a lot better in that area as well, with you know, especially with their uh, ancillary income ideas and whatnot. But all that, all that aside, in the short term, I certainly see the low cost carriers expanding market share. But for the long term, I still see the American Delta, United's uh, companies like that that um, uh, they're going to be fine. I guess the best analogy for it is, and maybe this is a horrible analogy. I don't know if it's going to work. You know, I never know. It's like when I teach a class, I I don't know until the end if it was a good analogy, but. But it's kind of like making a lifestyle change versus a diet. You know, if you want to lose some weight quickly, you go on a diet and you lose the weight and it's good for the short term for sure. And that's what I see the low cost carrier. They're going to be really good in the short term. But if you want to build yourself to last, right, you want to make some lifestyle changes that become part of your habits and things that you do for the rest of your life. Uh, that's what I see, you know, the infrastructure that's in place at the big three there. Uh, they're going to they're going to be fine long term, and it looks like they've been able to fix their cash burn, albeit with some help from the government. And 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 I think that's completely fair, by the way. Uh, but that being said, I think they're going to be able to adjust for that long term. So I still think the, I'm still bullish on the industry overall in terms of employees and in terms of being a viable industry. And um, I just think that the business international is going to take a little bit longer to re- recover, but the domestic and the leisure travelers seem to be coming back in droves. Talking about government bailouts, uh, I mean, obviously us in the aviation industry, it is great. Like we are very happy to see that we're all still employed, that uh, all the airlines are still here minus a couple, but those really truly were, I hate to say it, but only a matter of time. Maybe COVID increased it, but it kind of the writing was kind of on the wall at the beginning of the pandemic before that, if I'm not mistaken. But with what we can look back on now, I mean, two things. One, playing devil's advocate, like 
did we give too much money? Is there some point where it's like you either survive or you don't, you know, based on your previous success and how much money you're able to have, like it's unfortunate, but did we give too much money? And then two, if we keep, it's kind of like a, if we keep giving money in every situation, we never teach the airlines how to prevent this from happening in the future. So this something like this happens in five years. What do we just keep giving them money and money and money and money? And obviously someone has to pay for that money. It's kind of like, do we need to reinforce good, good behavior in the good times and saving money now versus just the proving that we will just hand out money over and over and over again. And like I said, I'm not saying that's what we should do or what we shouldn't do. I'm just kind of playing devil's advocate and uh, talk about how much money we actually gave to all the airlines. Well, I think it's a fair question. And certainly a laissez-faire economist, someone who completely believes, uh, totally believes in free market metrics and free market pressures would certainly advocate for uh, that side of the equation saying, hey, there's going to have to be some airline deaths. That's going to right-size the market. It'll be short-term pain for long-term better product, right? However, I do believe in this particular case, it's different because, uh, you know, imagine if you had a business and whatever whatever you sold, maybe you, maybe you own a, a local gas station, and all of a sudden the government moved in and said, because of public safety, you can no longer sell your gasoline at all. And um, if they, because it was their rule that caused you to do that, you would go out of business in pretty short order. There's no company in the world, Apple, Microsoft, no one could survive not selling their product for several months, uh, you know, at the scale that they're used to. It would be, you know, massive down there, especially if it's a regulatorily induced situation. And so I do believe that it was fair for the government to do that just on an ethical basis, but then also on a practical basis. Keep in mind that the passenger air industry and also the uh, uh, freight, you know, uh, if you just look at the passenger industry, uh, that accounts for different estimates out there. But but some people believe as high as 10 percent of our GDP. So if you take one tenth of our economy and just let it struggle and uh, let the market play out, it's going to have ripple effects on the rest of your economy. It's any kind of a logistics type of uh, uh operation within your GDP that affects other aspects of it, it's going to be a big problem. So ethically, I think the government was right to give something because they're the ones, it was their rules. Even if it wasn't the federal government, the local governments with the different rules and and whatnot, the travel rules early on, especially, uh, definitely made it very problematic, if not impossible for people to use the product. And then secondly, long-term, if we, if we let some of the bigger carriers uh, go bankrupt and liquidate during our recovery, it could absolutely exacerbate and lengthen our recovery because we won't have the logistics and the infrastructure in place to help with the recovery. So I do think in those cases, you can make a really strong argument. Um, to the laissez-faire economist that thinks you should not artificially uh, uh, go in there, I generally agree with that. But, you know, <clears throat> this is one of those particular events that I hope is a, you know, a once-in-a-lifetime event. I mean, this was much more dramatic than the 9-11 attacks, the effect not in terms of um, politics or in terms of loss of life. Well, it's certainly more now than loss of life, but but uh, certainly was dramatic at the time. But in terms of effect and lingering effects on our industry and our economy, uh, much more dramatic than anything we've ever seen. Uh, I mean, even during the Gulf Wars and some of the earlier uh, uh, oil embargoes, things like that, nothing is compared to what we've seen here. And so... This is one of those extraordinary times, I think, that you can 
come in and, and try to help the markets if you're a government regulator. But I do I do think we have to be very sensitive to the other argument that, you know, when do you stop and are you rewarding bad behavior, uh, you know, and things like that. Those are those are things you certainly in you know, a moral hazard, right? Those are things you certainly have to take a look at uh, going forward. And if we want to look at kind of the complete opposite of how the United States react, we just have to look right to our neighbor to the north in Canada, where the aviation industry is really reeling and struggling for money. And I think the government just finally, what was it, like a month ago, gave their first kind of uh, relief package to airlines. And it seems to still not really have made a huge um, help for them at all. I mean, I've I've only talked, I only have a few Canadian pilots that I know, and obviously they're going to be on the aviation side and really wanting the money to get back flying. But it just seems from reading and from seeing what's been going on that they are doing this completely opposite than what the United United States is doing. Well, I think that's, that's a good point. To, you look at a place like Canada and there's other parts of the world too, especially because uh, the travel restrictions that were put on were uh, uh, more severe in many parts of the world, including Canada. And so um, I think that, uh, uh, you know, every government agency is, or I'm sorry, every government regulator, every country is going to take a look at it themselves. You know, there's, there's nothing else like the United States in terms of aviation in the world. When you look at our number of our carriers, number of passengers we transport, the economic activity, there's no other airline industry in the world that comes close. I mean, um, certainly you look at the European Union and, and uh, you know, some Asian carriers, they certainly do a lot of flying. But in terms of revenue and everything else, <clears throat> when you look at the uh, number of people versus uh, uh, amount of uh, economic activity. So there's nothing like the U.S. So it's hard to make any comparisons. I, I don't know what type of impact on Canada's GDP uh, the airline industry and aviation has in general. Uh, obviously, I'm sure it's substantial, just like it is in the U.S., but that's going to be one of those decisions. It is surprising, though, that in countries that are perceived at least, maybe this is unfair, but countries that are perceived at least to have governments that are a little more likely to become involved in the private industry, of which I would put Canada in there before I put the United States government in there. It is interesting to kind of see that role reversal where here in the U.S., you had the regulators step in and, and give money and you didn't necessarily see that in other places where in the past you would have bet money that it would happen there first. So, yeah, it's uh, the pandemic is really... Um, really uh, un un unveiled some surprises and sometimes good, sometimes bad, uh, certainly things that were not predictive ahead of time and some things that were very predictive. And so, yeah, we'll just have to see how it plays out. I, I, I do remain convinced no matter where you're at in the world uh, in terms of the airline industry, uh, just as we've seen every time there will be a rebound. The question is how long is that going to take? You know, and I think in some parts of the world, it may be a lot slower than you see in places like the U.S. and other places where maybe there's a little more economic activity. Focusing more on the U.S. and the government and, and kind of the money gave. Uh, for someone that it, it doesn't really read up on it, doesn't really know to kind of set the facts straight, was it all grants? Uh, are airlines having to pay back? Did they have to give up anything really substantial to the government? Or was it free money? Or was it just, hey, this is kind of something that was self and not self-induced, but it's like the the analogy you gave of the gasoline, like the gasoline's not safe anymore. You can't buy it. Uh, they were told you can't fly. What was all, what, what did the airlines have to give back? What are they going to have to do for the next couple of years? Or is it just, uh, like we said, free money? And uh, let's just hope this doesn't happen again. Well, I think at the beginning, under the initial CARES Act, you definitely saw more on the grants, but there were covenants that were placed with those grants that basically said things like, you know, you couldn't uh, do any type of um, 
stock buybacks or dividend payouts or uh, furloughs or things like that, right? So that money was given quid pro quo for those reasons with those covenants. Um, later on, you definitely saw uh, more of, uh, and I don't know if they're still called loans per se. There might have been some warrants and some underlying guarantees. I, I would have to look at this last round to see because there were so many um, ideas uh, floating around. I'm not sure what made it in. And then also to complicate that even further, each individual airline that wanted the the second CARES Act um, the, or the second stimulus, they ended up uh, having to do their own individual negotiations with the Department of the Treasury. And so there may be even individual differences amongst carriers. Now, my, my guess is, is there wouldn't be substantial differences because one carrier would say, hey, that's unfair. The question really is, is uh, if were there any warrants issued, which basically says, if you don't repay any of this this on time for our schedule, then the U.S. government gets to own part of your airline. And there are some companies that were really against that back at the time. And so I don't know if that made it into the second stimulus package or not. That would be a, a good thing to investigate. Um, and so I can certainly look into that, that particular part of it. But uh, certainly the first part was more grants uh, with covenants. The second part was definitely more, you'll see more loan structures. So how did that work with, uh, say, like American versus United and Delta? Where Americans like, well, screw it, we're furloughing anyways. You know, they kind of were just, uh, we're not negotiating whether they didn't like what the union was offering or vice versa, the union didn't like what the company was offering. Did they have to take less money or did they still have to take the same amount? I mean, I know that's probably hard to really tell. They kind of uh, don't publish maybe that, well, how much money they actually took or they do. Maybe they make it hard to find out the true number. But do we know if there's any difference in the tween and, and what they got or what they have to give back based on the fact that they did furlough? Well, in the first round, um, the, uh, the so there were a lot of really weird nuances like voluntary furloughs, for instance, and early buyouts, early retirements, things like that. Um, there were companies that were allowed to do that without having any kind of an effect on the uh, CARES Act. Uh, but as far as involuntary furloughs, I thought most of those were most of those were widely mitigated. If they're if you're aware of an airline that um, uh, took the money and then uh, still furloughed. I'd have to really look into that in greater detail, and perhaps it's something I missed. I I thought for the most part, if you took the first CARES Act, there was an absolute covenant that said you you couldn't furlough at least the first time. It was through um, yeah, I want to say the end October. of summer last summer or something. It was like that, I think maybe. it was like October first. Uh, but so yeah. yeah, so to stand corrected, American took the money and didn't furlough <laughs> until that date. After that date, they did furlough. Oh right, and then when they got the money the second time, they brought everyone back. And I think that I don't know if they had to pay. Them back for the time they're furloughed yep, or what? There's back pay. Yep. So the second, the second, um, the second tranche, right? The the post uh, uh, October one. Yeah. Anyone that was furloughed, uh, that uh, when the money came in, they had to be back paid for that. Now, the airline work rules are so complicated. You know what is back paid? Is it the men guarantee, which I think most of them uh, went with? However, some airlines had a letter of uh, agreement that led to reduced pay. Uh, you know, and then also um, some uh, folks went on to work at another job. And so there really became it really became very uh, uh, complex and convoluted. And I don't know how individual situations were resolved uh, by that. Uh, and who knows, that might even take years to sort out. You know, for instance, um, if you get furloughed at American uh, and then you went and worked a, a corporate job, right, you found a corporate job. Uh, and you flew that for three or four months, and all of a sudden you got this back pay awarded to you. You know how's that work, right? You know, and uh, so there's things there's things like that that uh, 
uh, have to be um, looked at, I think, individually. So it was a little messy, I think, is a good word to, to use that. It didn't work perfectly in all cases. Yeah, messy so, is yeah. a great word for it. That is for sure. That's just the aviation industry in general, though. It's messy. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. Amen. Um, so now kind of getting, we're kind of bleeding into the, the talking about unions and um, contracts and new le- new minimums, all that kind of fun stuff, legal stuff. Are we back to normal yet with that? Did they reach the set, the snapbacks? Are airlines making it harder for those snapbacks to come through with the minimum pay? Uh, what's kind of, what, what, what are we looking at in that, that round of it, that aspect? Yeah, I, I don't believe we've like I don't believe we've reached the actual snapbacks. Snap snapbacks are based on different things, including like revenue and uh, number of passengers and things like that. So, in most cases, I don't know that we've actually hit that yet. Um, I think there's some weird things going on with the hiring going on. Yet you're still in some, um, you know, uh, reduced pay situations, which is kind of interesting. You're hiring in reduced pay, but. Um, Give it another two to three months, and I think you'll start seeing a lot more uh, normalcy in those situations. Uh, you know, we'll have to see based on uh, financial results. The airlines, uh, the big three, are all are all saying that they've uh, pretty much gotten their cash flow completely under control for the time being, and they're able to keep their head above water, which is great. Uh, and I do think you're going to see some profitability from some of the uh, low cost carriers as well. So all of that should make it a return to normalcy. You know, in pretty short order. But also, I feel like anytime you hear something like that, it's also how much of that is, well, Delta got it back. So now we need to say we have it back too for our investors. You know, like maybe one of the airlines is truly back to good cash flow, like a Southwest. And, and the other is like, oh, well, we should probably say we are too. So we look good, you know? That's always a very fine line between making it look good for your investors and reporting to the market. So the stock price of your airline stays in, in decent shape so your investors don't get uh, harmed. Versus um, not doing too good of a job because then your labor unions are going to be waiting there to get a piece of that piece of that pie as well. So it's always a that that's a uh, perennial, long term, decades old dance that managements have had to had to do. I will say generally they report based on uh, good news for their shareholders, and then they just do what they can at the negotiating tables to um, kind of uh, uh, handle uh, the blowback from that. Agreed. Uh, and talking about snapbacks, um, I mean, there's one airline in particular that worries me, not necessarily worries me about snapbacks, but airlines at the end of the day, they do whatever they need to do to make more money and they will fight to, to make sure these snapbacks are never reached. They will go to, they would rather throw away tons and tons of money in court fees and lawyer fees and fighting and proving that these snapbacks are never reached. Uh, I mean, the JetBlue American Airlines code share where JetBlue had them vote on it, had their pilots vote on it. They all voted, not all of them, but the majority voted no. And the airline's like, well, we're going to do it anyways. What keeps airlines from doing the same thing with negotiate with, uh, with the pay? I know it's in the contract, but airlines have proven that they don't really care sometimes and they will do whatever it takes to save money uh, and make sure they have the cash needed to do other things. Well, you're getting into a very, very ancient uh, piece of the Railway Labor Act, the RLA, which governs this type of a situation in the U.S. with uh, airlines. And generally speaking, uh, one of the expectations of the uh, Railway Labor Act, the RLA, is what's called a status quo, uh, which means that everything has to proceed. And it works on both sides. So, for instance, if the company says, we will pay you X number of dollars per hour, and, and for some reason they don't pay you that, uh, they have to have some type of an argument 
some type of an argument. It could be a weak argument, but they have to have some type of an argument to justify that so that when they go to arbitration, it didn't just look like a unilateral change in working conditions, right, which is specifically prohibited by the RLA. Um, on the other side of that, and a lot of pilots, by the way, get confused on this, uh, sometimes they're asked to, to take an assignment that they believe may not be contractually uh, legal, but it is legal per the FAA, but it's not contractually legal. They still have to take that flight under the RLA. That's what the status quo part of it goes. And so um, there's a lot of misunderstanding on that. A lot of people think, no, I don't have to do it. It's not in the contract. You do have to do it. And if the company was wrong, you can grieve it. And then you'll get your compensation later on. That being said, um, an airline can't just say, if, if they haven't agreed upon snapback provision, they can't just say, we're not going to snap back because we don't want to. They have to have some kind of a um, justification, some type of a defense. Otherwise, the union would be – it actually would, would, would fall – I don't mean to make this an RLA class, but it would, it would fall under what's called a major dispute, which uh, those, aren't, those aren't allowed outside of um, uh, contract uh, negotiations. And so the uh, union would go to court for it. And in the case of a place like ALPA, they're, they're so familiar with this aspect of the RLA and what can be done and what can't be done, just like the company's lawyers are, that no one's going to take an unnecessary risk. Uh, and go through a uh, and, and risk a major dispute. And by the way, when I say major versus minor, I'm not talking. I'm not talking uh, just generally. Those have actual legal definitions of what a major dispute is, what a minor dispute is. They've been formed over years under case law, uh, mostly from NMB rulings and in some cases uh, from court rulings. And um, uh, so, generally speaking. And I know every pilot, every flight attendant, every mechanic would disagree with what I'm about to say. Remember, I used to uh, be the MEC chair at an at a airline. So, I mean, I was right there with them. But generally speaking, the company can just like not follow the contract. They have to have some kind of an argument. Even if they're proven to be wrong, they have to have some kind of an argument to do that. Well, that makes yeah. sense. I, that does make sense. And I think it's, I, I do think that they pay those lawyers a lot of money to try to figure out what argument would win. <laughs> you know? Well, that's true. Yeah. That's true. And they can make, they can make a lot of daylight out of just a little bit. I mean, one of, if you really want to get into this, one of my biggest complaints about the RLA is that there's no, there's no damages provision. So let's say Justin, you're working for an airline and, and you have a, a day off on Monday and it's your kid's birthday. And maybe it's you and your wife's anniversary. It's a big day for you. You've, bid and planned and use your seniority to get that day off and you're really excited and all of a sudden you get junior man and you have to fly that day right really really frustrating and you think it's a completely illegal contractual thing and the company says no we disagree well under the rla you still have to fly that monday and so you lose out on that time with your kid and your your anniversary with your wife and it really sucks for you and you grieve it and you win guess what's going to happen you're just going to get a compensatory day off at some point in the future and it's not going to be the same as that Monday uh, that you had for your kid's birthday and your wife's, wife's anniversary. There's no damages. You won't get like an extra two days for it or a $10,000 fine against the company. And so to me, that's always been one of the weaknesses of the RLA. Of course, on that side of it, it can go both ways. You know, if there's going to be damages, there would have to be damage on both sides. So it's always one of those careful what you what you wish for. But but um, yeah, that's, that's one of the things that... Uh, you, you definitely see a lot of daylight made and very, very, uh, very, very narrow corners of contracts to make any kind of an argument. That's kind of what I'm getting at is that I feel like airlines are right now trying to figure out what's the most cost effective long term solution for them. Is it worth it for them to fight those to make sure they only because one they don't have to pay anything until once the court rules. So if arbitration and the law and the court cases go on for years and years and years, 
they still can pay what they have signed up for with a snapback, correct? That's generally correct. Sometimes there's, you know, back pay. Maybe the RLA says people have to be made whole. There just can't be any damages. So if a, if a, a company uh, behaved, you know, really, really poorly uh, and, you know, negatively, the most they're going to have to do is probably just make everyone whole. So if there was a gap of six months or maybe back pay that's associated with that. Yeah. And I, I guess, I mean, this is all speculation. It's just kind of like uh, they've, they've proven in the past that they've done stuff like that before. And I'm not trying to say they will do it. I don't want to scare anyone into it. I don't want to like waste any more time on it because who knows what's actually going to happen. But it's definitely a fear because a lot of times they can kind of do whatever they want. And contracts, I mean, contract or no contract, they, they try to figure out the best solution for them to make the most money. And a lot of times maybe it requires an arbitration case that will or will not rule in the favor of the union or the airline. Yeah, I, I do think that um, arbitration, which is alternative uh, dispute resolution, ADR, which is mandated in every single collective bargaining agreement uh, in the airline industry for the most part, um, you're absolutely right. There's not a lot of risk from the company's point of view. Most companies have in-house attorneys that can even handle that. So it's part of the salary mechanism. So there's not necessarily any additional cost. Uh, many cases, if it's a complex uh, situation, they'll outsource it. But even then, you, you're right. The amount of money at stake versus uh, what they might lose in arbitration uh, generally are very disproportionate. And so it's it's much less risky to go the arbitration route. I agree with you. I mean, that goes back to my argument about punitive damages that don't exist. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's going to, uh, this whole thing, it, it's still fluid. It's still interesting to see what's going to happen and where we're going to be in five years. And I think one thing that's interesting to think about is what have we learned about the aviation industry in this last year? Is it, is anything different that's happened in the past with other downturns or has it been the same thing? You know, airlines uh, try to save as much money as possible. They use a furlough. I guess this year was new, was really kind of the snapbacks and maybe the unions agreeing with airlines. I don't know if that's because they knew it was going to be somewhat of a temporary situation where in the past, maybe they didn't know how, how quick this was going to go, the financial crisis or September 11th. But what have we learned from this year and this, uh, the coronavirus's impact on aviation industry that was different in the past? Or would you say they followed the same script as they did in the past? Well, it's a great question. I, I think there's two big lessons that we learned. I'll do the, uh, the first one, which is the safety have you noticed that throughout all of this, uh, all the financial pressure, all the things going on in the industry, our safety record has, has, has remained intact? Uh, we, of course, have had some uh, close calls, uh, but by and large, our uh, safety has, has really stayed up there with uh, – I mean, if you think about what we do, putting millions of passengers, transporting them from point A to point B every year uh, in very complex, uh, high-consequence uh, industrial situations – and we really, no one really ever gets hurt. You know, we're, we're now past power, Powerball odds. So you have a better chance of winning the Powerball than you do getting hurt in a 121 accident in the United States, which is pretty spectacular. I mean, so now, now we see the news media getting into ASAP reports and safety reports. That's how, that's how, that's how safe we are that they're now looking at safety reports is the big story. So there's that. We've maintained and shown that we're very, very resilient in terms of safety, no matter the economic situation that faces the industry. So that's point one. Point two, this was the first time that the newer business models, the uh, uh, the post 9-11 business models were stress tested at an unbelievable level. And uh, if you recall, the uh, post 9-11 business models with most of the passenger carriers revolved around fuel hedging and ancillary income because it was after that time that people started hedging their fuel 
and also started charging for bags and uh, seating assignments and whatnot. And uh, it turned out that the, the the fuel hedging the it's still out. The jury's still out. In some cases, it really worked well. Some cases, not so well. But the um, the ancillary income uh, opportunities have proven once again to really build in a very big uh, safety boundary. Now, when no one was flying right after the flying was pretty much shut down in March of 2020, you know, there's no amount of ancillary income that's going to make up for that. However, I would argue that our return of the major airline carriers to a zero cash burn scenario, which in most places occurred, you know, 90 to 120 days after all this, after the product was, uh, basically disallowed or, or sharply restricted the number of people flying really demonstrates the viability of this post 9-11 hardened business plan. And I would also offer that lessons are being learned as we speak. Because, you know, you mentioned about how uh, you had relatives recently that were on full flights. Keep in mind, the capacity is not increased to what it was pre 9-11. But one thing that I'm sorry, pre uh, pre uh, COVID. But one thing that has greatly uh, improved is the algorithmic revenue models and the prediction of passengers. So even though you're seeing more, you're seeing more passengers on airplanes, the capacity is not returned. So what that means is, is the people in the scheduling, the route metrics, the people in the revenue offices, they have really sharpened their craft to make sure that when they fly, they're going to get the best yields that they can get. And so those lessons will stick with us for a very long time as well. And those are going to be brought on a lot by machine learning, artificial intelligence, and very, very smart people doing that. Those lessons will stay with us for a long time. So my guess is, is you're going to see a highly profitable sector five years from now. You're going to, you're going to see them killing it, barring another, you know, horrible cataclysmic situation, you know, world war or pandemic or, you know, some situation like that. You're going to, you're going to see them doing really well going forward. So that's what, we, those are the two things we've learned. We've maintained our safety and our business models, uh, post, um, uh, 9-11 have really, uh, uh, served us pretty well. So do you think we followed the same script as uh, like getting government money in that? Or do you think anything was different in that aspect in the past or other than finding new ways and new models of making money? Well, post 9-11, there were certainly carriers that, that received what was called airline stabilization funds. Some did, some didn't. So there was a little bit of that. Uh, but this time around, there was a lot more subsidization industry-wide. There, there's no doubt about that. So that is one difference. But I would argue, and I, I'm not an economist, but I would argue that that did give the companies not only it kept them in business, but it also gave them some time to sharpen their business model for the current environment. And then the cost savings and the different types of um, uh, business practices that are in place now will serve them well going forward. So so that certainly was a little bit of a, a difference with the money that was given. There's no doubt about that. And also, since we're kind of talking about looking back, has anything surprised you? Like uh, maybe... From the beginning, what you thought was going to happen, other than the, the 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 length of the virus and the length of how everything was affected, but what has surprised you through this? Um, was it how companies reacted? Was it the bounce back that we're seeing now? What is kind of the big surprise that you had maybe from last March to now that has happened? Uh, two, two really big surprises for me, and one of them I should have foreseen, but I didn't. But the, the one big surprise for me is I thought that we would be at 1.3 to maybe 1.5 million passengers per day by Christmas. Uh, and we weren't, you know, I think we, you know, just peaked over a million on a few of those really busy, traditionally busy 
uh, traveler days, you know, Thanksgiving weekend and things like that. So, so that was unfortunate. That, of course, you can see now is because we were in the throes of the second big wave of the COVID and, and, you know, people were still pretty worried about that and rightly so. So we didn't recover as quickly, as quickly as I thought we would, which was disappointing. Um, however, uh, we have now recovered a lot faster. So in the last six months, that has accelerated. We're now within, um, we're now within a million, if not less, passengers to normal traffic on a daily basis. So, you know, we're, we're averaging maybe 1.5 to 1.7 million passengers a day. Normally, we'd be at like 2.4 to 2.7, somewhere in there in a normal year. Um, and so uh, that represents, by the way, the, the lack of international business travelers, in my opinion. So, so what this is telling us is that the leisure travelers have returned, you know, pretty much in droves, which is great to see. And we just need to get those business and leisure travelers. So, so that, that's the second part that kind of that first part that kind of uh, surprised me as well. And I guess um, the, uh, uh, the biggest surprise uh, for me, and, and I, I, I probably should have seen it coming, was how fast airline hiring picked back up. And, and it, was, it was kind of a self-inflicted situation because the airlines did what they needed to do early on. And they gave a bunch of early outs, early retirements, early separation packages which of course incentivize people to leave early. They're like, heck, I can get this money. Let me go do that. And that's great. And now that the leisure travelers have returned and a lot of planes, especially domestically, are being brought back into service, all these pilots that normally would have been available to fly are now gone. And so that has artificially set up a uh, very, very quick situation where airlines have to spool up fast. And by fast, I mean, they're going to be behind the curve for the the next six to uh, 12 months for sure, just trying to hire into the domestic situation. And if an, if uh, business travel, international travel uh, returns by early next year, uh, then you're going to see an even greater need to, to hire. So that, that surprised me. I thought there might be some hiring uh, by this time, uh, but not in the amount uh, that you are seeing now, which is, I mean, there's massive amounts of hiring going on. I think United is announcing... They're going to hire close to 500 pilots just this summer, you know, as an example. So, so that that surprised me. Those are the two things that kind of kind of uh, got me. So, what do they do to combat that last part that you're saying? So, obviously, they need more pilots, but they need to sell as many tickets as possible. Do they sell every ticket available and then deal with the fact that they don't have a plane or a crew for it later and worry about inconveniencing the actual passenger? Because so they're gonna okay, yeah but- they're gonna. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, Justin. No, you're fine. I was the, pretty much done. <laughs> the the answer is yes. So what they're going to do is their their marketing department is going to figure out what the demand. They're going to predict what the demand is going to be, and they're going to be pretty close because they obviously have bookings data and things we don't have access to. So they're going to predict that they're going to say this is the schedule we need to fly. The company operationally is going to do everything they can to fly that. Now, um, even though they may not have the pilots or the planes to do it, they'll they'll probably have the planes, but not the pilots. What they're going to end up doing is they're going to, there's going to be a lot of um, uh, junior manning, and a lot of uh, trip extensions, and you know it's going to cost them plenty, but it's also going to inconvenience the the crews that are there. You're you're going to see that because they're, the companies right now are in a race to recapture or in some cases increase their post COVID market shares, and and that means that they're going to have to hire people so that they can make sure that they execute that. And the companies that do that poorly are going to really miss out on this redistribution of market share. That's happening. That's going to happen over the next six months in terms of domestic leisure travel. So who's going to be, I mean, I think I know the answer to this, but who's going to be the most 
affected in the next six months? Is it going to be the demand of the crews and um, kind of impact that they're going to feel from that? Like you were just talking about, is it going to be the actual passenger who's going to have maybe their trips changed uh, from they think they're booking a ticket on June 6th, but actually the airline doesn't have a, a crew or a plane to fly that. So then they need to fly June 7th. Who's going to be the most inconvenienced and affected by this? Uh, the most inconvenienced and affected by it's going to be the, the workers uh, because they're going to, everyone's going to prioritize the passengers first. Um, it, not just because people are going to think it's the right thing to do, but one, economically it makes the most sense. And, and, and two, if you start canceling too many flights, you can get in trouble through the Department of Transportation. If you're if you're offering flights to the public and you're continually not filling them, at some point that becomes an issue. So so people are going to operationally uh, adjust to that. So that it's going to be it's going to there's going to be some growing pains. There's going to be a lot of finger pointing about too many cuts too early. Again, I don't blame the companies because at the time they had big cash flow problems. And they had to figure out how to solve that in a very quick order, and so that's what they did. Um, but yeah, there's definitely going to be an adjustment period. Remember how we said at the beginning of this, just within a year, you saw lots of ups and lots of downs. It was like a merry-go-round. You're going to continue to see that for the next six to nine months until stability and, and normalcy resume. Yeah, definitely. It's uh, <laughs> it's still a fluid situation like we talked about before. It's going to be really interesting to see what happens. Uh, I don't think that this will be the last one. I think that we just need to continue to have these. So I'm going to keep having you back. Well, in this one here, it's been about almost an hour now that we've been talking. But I guess my last question for this is, as this is winding down, and this was a huge threat to aviation, uh, what do you foresee foresee being the next big challenge? Is it um, how, is it fuel? Is it um, figuring out a way that we aren't killing the planet with uh, all the airplanes that are going up? Like what's the next uh, big challenge that we foresee in the next uh, five years? Is this, this one is winding down and the next great challenge for the aviation industry? Well, the two you just brought up are, are uh, important for sure. You know, the um, at any given, what I, I worry about, things that keep me awake, uh, just the geopolitical situation around the world. You know, if we have any any kind of hotspots that spring up into any kind of a, a war, of course, war is horrible. We all know that. Uh, but that has consequences throughout the world. If it spreads and other countries become involved, that really can have a very dramatic effect on the industry. Again, the war is the hell part, but but just from a just from a very narrow viewpoint on our industry, that would have a big impact as well. Um, oil, you know, I hope, I hope, I hope that the carriers out there, that uh, uh, even the ones that don't believe in hedging, I hope that most of them bought their oil when oil was near zero uh, last year. <laughs> you know, hopefully they secured their next uh, three to five year supply if possible, or at least they got a very good deal on that. Because right now, if they're paying at the pump like you and I do, uh, that airline's in a world of hurt. But we'll, we'll analyze the 10Ks and see what, what's been done in that area. Uh, you know, places like um, Delta will be fine. They have their own refinery. Uh, you know, so, so there are companies that will be fine through that. But I just hope the ones that don't traditionally hedge or pre-buy or pre-sell fuel, I just hope that they did the right thing and bought. Because no matter what, Fuel is not ever going to be better than zero or close to zero, right? So that would have been a great time to buy all of your future supply with contracts. So hopefully they did that. If they didn't, then we'll have another conversation about that the next time we talk with the carriers that didn't do that. So I hope that's out, uh, I hope that that's uh, 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 taken care of and largely ameliorated. The uh, last part is the carbon piece. You know, that's a very real issue, uh, irrespective of one's own personal beliefs, that that's a very real issue. Recall that prior to this pandemic, uh, you know, as, as late as uh, 2020, 
the European Union was putting in place a trade scheme for making uh, airlines buy carbon offsets. And anyone that was going to fly into Europe was going to have to do that. That's been put on hold for the most part during this pandemic because of the costs associated with it. But you're absolutely right. That's going to be one of the next big um, uh, technical challenges uh, that companies are going to have to navigate. And as you know, some companies have already come out. United's come out and said they plan to be carbon neutral uh, by, I forget what it was. Was it 20? I can't remember. Don't quote me on it. But it's it's coming up. And uh, some other companies are following uh, suit. So we will see um, that become a big emphasis. And that's something that's going to have to be managed like other all other aspects of the industry. And it could get complicated. Yeah, absolutely. And that will be uh, <laughs> some more content in the future. We can kind of dive deep into that in our next episode. But Dr. Jim Higgins, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's always fun to talk to you. And it's just great to hear your, your outlook and what you think about the industry and kind of your knowledge and to get it out there. So I appreciate that. Uh, we also didn't really talk about uh, the future of, of hiring uh, pilots, uh, what the, the actual industry looks like with training. Are people kind of afraid to get into training? Are they going back in it? So we'll have to push that for another one as well. But uh, I thank you so much for coming on. I look forward to getting this out there and uh, yeah, got to get you back on. Always nice to talk with you, Justin. And thank you for the invite once again. Yeah, anytime. I appreciate it. And that is a wrap of episode 171 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Thank you so much for listening. As I said earlier, leave us a review. It means a lot to have a review. The more five-star reviews, the more chances that someone will find the podcast and will become a listener and maybe even get into aviation. So leave us a review. It would be greatly appreciated. Check out Pilot's Coffee, the best coffee for traveling on the road. I promise you it is good coffee. Buy it and try it. It is amazing. Uh, share it with all your friends. Let everyone know. There is a flyer on the website that is free. It is a download. All you have to do is go to the website and download it. And it is a flyer for you to leave in your FBO. If you want your FBO to serve Pilot's Coffee, leave it there. And then they can reach out to us and we can make it happen. Aviation, hope you guys are having a great day. And as always, happy flying.